pop. I'm not a child anymore. That's Bud Schulberg's On the Waterfront, starring Jeffrey Donovan, Hector Elizondo, and Rebecca Pigeon, Saturday evening, 7 to 9 p.m., on listener-sponsored 9 commercial, WBAI New York. 99.5 FM, WBAI New York, and WBAI.org for all of our people tuning in on the web. Good afternoon, kind of? I mean, good evening. I mean, it's 6 o'clock, but it's still sunny outside, so good afternoon-ish. <laughs> the last program was Caribbean Voices and Beyond, a program which you can hear every Saturday from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Now, coming up next, we have Randy Credico with Live on the Fly, so please stay tuned to listener-sponsored, corporate-free, 99.5 FM, WBAI in the and why? It's Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that have returned honor to to journalism. Julian is a truth teller, and that's what has upset the those who continue what Goebbels called the big lie. <laughs> afternoon, early evening. Uh, this is Randy Credico. Randy Credico live on the fly here on uh, Saturday. Uh, today, normally I'm on uh, Wednesdays at 2.30 uh, for a few weeks, I think, or maybe a few weeks after that uh, more. Uh, we'll be here on Saturday at 6 p.m. Um, by the way, at the very top of the, uh, of the show, that was John Pilger. And that was John Pilger here. Four years ago tomorrow, four years ago tomorrow, when we kicked off the series here at WBAI, the Assange Countdown to Freedom series, it was right here. He was the first person on, Julian Assange was the second person on, and on that April 4th kicked off that long series, Assange Countdown to Freedom. It's been four years now, and I know it seems like a lost cause, you know? It's it's been four years, but you know... Those are the only causes that you fight for, lost causes. It's Jimmy Stewart, and it's um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. The only ones you're supposed to fight for are lost causes. Remember that? Um, But, uh, I mean, the Rockefeller drug laws was a lost cause. We spent seven years. The Counselor Fund kicked off, spearheaded the movement to change the Rockefeller drug laws, at the end of uh, 1997, but we got the job done with the help of WBAI. BAI was right there from the very beginning to the very end. We got a lot of assistance from this station. Without it, the organizing wouldn't have happened. And the same thing with Tuya, Texas. Tuya, Texas started out in 2000, and it was three and a half years later where everybody was released. We were there the whole time. The Kunstler Fund uh, was there the whole time, and it looked like a lost cause, but we stayed with it, and WBAI, from the very beginning, the first national exposure they got was right here at WBAI. It was on Wake Up Call. It was on Democracy Now! way back before the Christmas coup. Uh, we're talking about 2000, and also uh, it was on Al Lewis's show uh, and David Rothenberg. We raised money. We got uh, attorneys. So the Kunstler Fund and WBAI involved together in two uh, causes that were lost causes, but we actually got the job done. And it's the same thing with Julian Assange. It's a major cause, folks. Um, And by the way, on April 11th will be the two-year anniversary of Julian Assange being illegally arrested and thrown into this dungeon called Belmarsh in London. Two years, and there will be a demonstration here in New York City. Uh, NYC Free Assange will be holding a press conference and a demonstration at 11 a.m. in the morning in front of the British Consulate on 2nd Avenue and 47th Street. I'm going to do my best to be there. So um, just count on me. 
If not, I'll be there in spirit and show up because this is a lost cause that can be won, and it's an important – it's a fundamental cause. It's We're talking about – it's an existential threat to the whole world of journalism if Julian Assange is extradited to this country and put in prison. This station would be affected, and so will mainstream media – uh, outlets that have uh, thrown uh, Julian under the bus. Ironically, they're not there for him. Um, I just want to mention that we're going to have uh, Margaret Ratner-Kunstler and Marty Stoller, uh, two uh, heavyweight uh, civil rights attorneys, on today. And uh, I, I want to mention Margaret first because she's the co-editor with Tariq Ali of a fabulous book called In Defense of Assange. And uh, the... Um, the um, the publisher of the book, uh, Colin Robinson of Or Books, has given us uh, a bunch of copies to use as a premium. So Margaret has signed them, and if you'd like to get a copy, help out the station uh, for a pledge of fifty dollars, you will get in defense of Assange uh, with a autograph by Margaret Ratner Kunstler, and it is. Tremendous. A lot of testimonials and essays by Daniel Ellsberg, uh, Chris Hedges, John Pilger, Stefania Morizzi, Craig Murray, Julian Assange himself, and uh, about 40 more other uh, notable individuals. So uh, you can make that pledge by calling this number, 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or you can send a check to uh, make it out to WBAI uh, Pacifica and uh, send it to WBAI 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11217. Okay, we'll say that again at the end. Remind me, Giovanni, to repeat that. All right, so it's a great book. Um, We've been, as I said, four years now. Uh, working on this uh, Assange uh, a case, and uh, we will continue, and we're not going to give up. I, 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 I must really hand it to the station here for giving us so much time on this uh, important issue. So let's see. Let's get right into it. Uh, also, by the way, it's the since the two-year anniversary of Assange being locked up. It's the 50-year anniversary of Attica this year, September 11th. Uh, September 9th will be the 50-year anniversary of Attica. So we're going to be devoting some time today on uh, Assange and Attica with both attorneys uh, because they both have a lot to say and they've been involved with the Attica Defense Fund uh, way back in 1971. So uh, we're, we're going to go to our first guest here, um, Margaret Ratner, Kunstler, the civil rights uh, giant uh, who was with the Center for Constitutional Rights for many years, and uh, she's, she's got quite a record. We'll be right back, uh, right after this, a uh, little bit of music from uh, Sam Cooke. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Till the sun is going down Working on the highways and byways And wearing, wearing a frown You hear them moaning their lives away Then you hear somebody say That's the sound of the men working on the chain Okay, Sam Cooke, uh, working on the chain gang. I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico live on the fly here on 99.5 FM in New York City. And we will uh, continue uh, our discussion, our kickoff, our discussion uh, on Attica and Julian Assange 
with a real, uh, well-respected, esteemed um, civil rights attorney, Margaret Ratner Kunstler, who I've never interviewed here in the four years I've been doing radio at WBAI. Uh, thank you, uh, Margaret, for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Randy. Uh, so, um, well, we started off talking about the two anniversaries, um, and, and I, I mentioned that, you know, you, you at the Kunstler Fund, many years at the Kunstler Fund as the president, uh, we were involved in two lost causes. One of them was Tuya, the other one was the Rockefeller drug laws. And uh, even though they seem like lost causes, uh, we got the job done. And now I'm looking at Julian Assange. It's been a four-year struggle at least for me, but it's been a 10-year struggle for people like yourself, but you continue on. What what propels you to go on, and why is it so important uh, to rally around Julian Assange and keep on moving? Well, I think he's made a tremendous contribution uh, to an understanding by citizens of the United States about what their government is doing. And that kind of transparency... Is really important. It's like it's like the right to vote, which is so important. But if you don't know what your government is doing, how do you know who to vote for? How do you know when to protest in the streets? How do you know how to act? Because just like voting is important, knowing what's happening is critically important. So, so I mean, but what are some of the things that Julian Assange has over the years, uh, some of the key uh, elements of his work, uh, revelations that that has made us more aware of what's going on by our government to you? Well, you know, this is the anniversary of the release of the collateral murder video. So it, it was 10 years ago on this day that, that that video was released. And that was a really significant uh, video because it, it, it described, it absolutely showed a war crime in, in total, in black and white. It was a war crime that was committed in, in, the, in Iraq in 2007 by um, two soldiers in an Iraqi, uh, in a... Um, In a, in a helicopter that was called... Um, Apache. Apache helicopter. Apache helicopter, right. I, yeah. just, I had to look it up. And um, so what happened is that they, mis- they, they thought that the two reporters who were on the ground were carrying weapons. So that started it off. So they were shot. The two reporters were shot. Then somebody came in to help them. They were shot. In fact, as a result... Twelve people were killed. Twelve people were killed by mistake and, and with, with joyous laughter by the pilots of the, of the helicopter. And it was a terrible experience uh, for the U.S. to see that something like this could happen. Do you think that information, those videos, would have ever been made public if not for WikiLeaks? No. In fact, uh, Reuters was concerned about its two reporters, and it asked, uh, for release of the video so they could understand what happened and it was refused. And um, if it weren't for Julian Assange, th- th- this video would never have been shown. Right. And that's just like uh, just a drop in the bucket of some of the war crimes committed by the U.S., uh, not just in Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and Honduras. Uh, and I, I suppose... Uh, they don't want their dirty laundry uh, to be put on display publicly. And uh, this must be what, – what is the motivation to you why they are – and under Biden uh, are continuing uh, to try to get him over here, put him through a, uh, a Kafka-esque legal process and ship him away to a um, one of these supermax prisons? What is the driving well, force you know, there? There's a, there's a line that people repeat that it's, it's, it's very dangerous to make an enemy of the FBI. Julia not only made an enemy of the FBI, but also the Defense Department, the CIA, and the government, um, because they don't like their dirty laundry being aired in public. And if you have someone who is brave enough to confront a government that, is, that 
hides everything that it's done, it, that hides its war crimes, that, that lies about why it starts wars, um, you kind of, the government itself gets, gets infuriated and has to silence the person who is releasing this information. Right. Well, you know, Julian must have known that he was uh, potentially facing problems of this nature uh, when he released it. What drove him to do it uh, irrespective of the potential consequences? Well, what drove him to do it was his courage, his courage and his desire to to really to to make a, a world that was a better place and that didn't have wars. Um, he was a peacemaker, and that was his role. Long time. He's been a long time um, uh, peacemaker. Uh, the other, um, uh, then you got Cablegate, which embarrassed yes. a lot of people. Uh, tell right. us a little bit about Cablegate. Why would that anger so many people? Besides, um, well, here's what happened right after um, the, the 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 video from Baghdad was shown. There was a WikiLeaks released. Um, the Afghan war logs. The Afghan war logs were, you know, were released only about a year after the Afghan war had ended, and it hasn't ended yet. But um, it, it, it revealed that, that the government had been lying about what, was, what the torture was happening. At this time, we didn't know the actual, at the time of the, the, um, the cables were released, we didn't know actually that the U.S. had committed the torture. What we thought was happening is that the U.S. was turning over um, prisoners to um, to the Afghans, and the Afghans were torturing them. But in fact, it was the U.S. who was doing that. Um, and that right after the, the um, release of the Afghan of the Afghan um, cables, there was the release of of the Iraq cables, and by that time, the U.S. government was apoplectic. You know, they've got to get this guy. And the way that they have in the past figured out how to get people is by kind of the COINTELPRO aspect of destroying their reputation. And that's what they started out to do. And they've been quite successful about it. That's why the book that, that, um, that I, I want to talk about. In Defense of Assange with you and yes, Tariq that, Ali. I, you know, right. I talked about it up front. What what? This is one that you edited. I know you spent a lot of time on it. Tell us a little bit about that book. Well, it's it's about forty essays, and it covers completely uh, the time period of the last ten years and what has happened to Julian Assange. It covers it in terms of this, the the um, the ch- the charges against him, the effect of the charges, the meaning of the charges in a in a larger sense in, to journalism. And what happened to him? So it covers everything. It, it, um, it's really a very important book because people in the United States are under the misimpression about the character of Julian Assange. And this book explains not only his character, but what he's been through and what the, the uh, wonderful things he's accomplished by his releases. Yes. You know, um, he's been smeared left and right. Uh, there's been an organized smear job. Uh, of Julian Assange, uh, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, and do uh, you think this was deliberately uh, put out there to undermine his uh, character and make it easier for the public to be non-sympathetic to Mr. Assange? Well, it, 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 w- it wouldn't have been the first time that the United States has engaged in that kind of activity. I mean, the FBI did it with COINTELPRO, um, and there was first of all was a rumor that that uh, that that Palantir and and Stratford had developed uh, uh, a program of getting rid of Julian that included uh, destroying his reputation, put, making false charges against him. But really, I don't I don't think that that the U.S. government needed either Stratford or Palantir to show them how to destroy and to commit these crimes against somebody and to hold somebody in in limbo for 10 years, um, they know how to do that. And that's what they did. You've, you've it known. It was a program that they followed. Right. And, and, and you've known Julian Assange. You've been in that embassy many times. Uh, you've been uh, part of a, 
a group of legal advisors to Assange. And uh, so you know him pretty well. What was what is your impression of people who don't know him? I'm, I've you know, I've been there a couple of times for a, a short period of time, but you've been there from, you know, for years. So tell us your impression of Julian Assange and uh, what kind of individual he is. Well, first of all, he's brilliant. And second of all, he's tremendously courageous. He, as you said before, he knew what he was risking, and he, took, he accepted it and he took the chance because it, it was so important to, to be an actor in this world and do the right thing. And that's, that's, that's a courageous person. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that's my personal feeling about him. And, you know, he's... he's I, I've never seen him act in a way that wasn't gentle and sweet and brilliant. So, um, yes, there, but you know, th- there, there's there's not a in this country, and it's for a number of reasons that it it's not like a case of let's say Nelson Mandela where you got a lot of people on the street because people are misinformed about uh, Julian Assange. There should be because. Uh, as you've said many times, this has major implications, consequences, if he is shipped off to this country. What distinguishes his case from the other cases of political prisoners in this country? Well, first of all, it's an international case. And um, it's the U.S. taking uh, impurity and, and, and going around the world and thinking that they can control what's happening in, the, in countries around the world. It's an example of that. Um, Julian has never been in the United States, and yet he's, he's charged here. On what basis do they assert jurisdiction over him? It's kind of like a very bold act, um, and it, it, should, um, it should make people in other countries consider um, that it's dangerous to do things that, that alienate the U.S., because maybe it'll be... Maybe he'll be indicted and and and, and uh, extradited and charged with a crime. Well, what 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 does it do? What kind of chilling effect does it have uh, in this country in terms of journalism? Why should journalists be? Well, uh, it, it it threatens national security journalism. There's no question that if if that that national security journalists are concerned because if Julian is is uh, convicted or even extradited for 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 the for publishing um information then 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 national security journalism has to end because you're not allowed to publish or you can continue it and you know you're going to go to jail right we're talking with margaret ratner counselor civil rights attorney um an awardee of the uh, National Lawyers Guild, a uh, big award uh, for her work as an attorney. Uh, she's the author of uh, Hell No and uh, also co-author of uh, When an Agent Knocks, or is it the other way around, uh, when she was at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Uh, and, uh, and you worked a, a long time uh, on the Attica Defense Fund. I want to get into that because this is the 50-year anniversary of Attica. What does Attica and the memory of Attica mean to you, Margaret, and and what it means today? Well, you know, Attica had um, a tremendous effect on many, many people. It had an effect on the lawyers, particularly who went up there and interviewed the, um, the brothers who were, you know, beaten and tortured and treated like... In, treated so inhumanly, and under, and began to understand the depth of the of the racism that's involved was involved here. It changed all of these lawyers, and all of us became rather radicalized and um, understanding more about this culture and how it operates. Right. Well, um, so what's and, the lesson? In the larger, yes. In the larger world, it, it it stands for a rebellion. Um, that was absolutely outrageously put down. Uh, there were negotiations going on. There were uh, people negotiating for the for the prisoners. Um, there was no reason uh, after four days to bring in the forces of an of, of an army. It was mili- total military attack on these on these people. Four, over forty people were killed. 
Um, hundreds were injured. Um, and, as, and after that, they were led out of the yard and then tortured. Um, it, it was, uh, it was a, a scene um, out, of, out of something, you know, it's, it was, it's like, um, it's just like uh, the murder of, of, a black pers- of a black person on the street. But it's, it's, it's 43 times that. Right. Um, and and you, you, there's torture here. So you understand how, how, how a country can, can, uh, can deny humanity to such a group to so easily as to just go in and murder people. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. People, unarmed people um, are, were murdered with dumb, dumb bullets and uh, a buckshot that, that, um, that explodes in huge areas from shotguns. I mean, and then tortured, made to run over glass, beaten as they walked down alleys. And there was a leadership um, was treated even worse. The leadership was taken over to a certain area of the prison. They were beaten on the way to that area. And then they were not given uh, medical aid. And they were, it, 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 it's, it's really an outrageous event in U.S. history. And, and their grievances were, were never... Um were never taken up by the uh, by the prison, right? No. They were never addressed. The agreements were very reasonable. It was for medical care. It was for food. It was for basic human um, things that that any anybody, even in prison, should be should be available to them. Do you, do you think those, when when you take a look at because uh, you've been involved in a lot of prison work? I mean, Rockefeller drug laws uh, after they were changed uh, in two thousand and four. Uh, you at the Concert Fund uh, represented more uh, people who were eligible for resentence. I don't know if people know this than any lawyer in the state of New York. And so, what drove you to do that? Is uh, is it did the Attica experience uh, have uh, that kind of influence on you going forward uh, in in terms of dealing with uh, prisoners' rights? Absolutely. You know, um, from that moment on. The greatest pleasure in my life was going up to a prison and bringing a prisoner out. I mean, there's nothing more satisfying for me as a lawyer, and for many of the lawyers who had that same experience, is getting someone out of jail. Right. So it, you, you feel like you've accomplished something. Uh, all way. And it, it really it, it made me um, understand that, that that was my goal in life. Right. Because, you know, you went to Columbia Law School. You had the opportunity to work at a big law firm, to work, you know, as a corporate attorney. Uh, and I, I suppose it was growing up in the Bronx in the 50s that kind of shaped your politics. You were never going to go in any other direction. Am I correct in saying that? Well, I, I must say that the greatest effect on me was was Columbia in 1968 um, when when the strike happened, and the strike was based on the racism, basically, of the university and its participation in, in, the, in the Vietnam War, um, that experience uh, was, was, was really um, one that, that, made me into, that made me all, that also affected me greatly. It made me into a radical. It made me feel like I couldn't just sit back and do, um, do the work of the corporations. I had to take an active role and try to improve what's happening here. Just before we go here, Mark, we only got a few minutes left. I, 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 I've been wanting to talk about this. Uh, and that is uh, when I, I met you way back in 86. And I, I, after I met you, I, I, was, I went to Nicaragua. I came back. I was in Los Angeles. And I saw I used to watch Peter Jennings on ABC News uh, uh, Monday through Friday. And I was watching it one day, and lo and behold, there you were, uh, the person of the week uh, for your work uh, with the, um, the the center in terms of Central American uh, refugees and dissidents and, and religious leaders. That was the uh, movement. Um, what was it's it called? The movement support network. Support network. And, um, it was formed to respond to what was happening to the solidarity organizations and people who were supporting. Uh, 
the, the, the Salvadorans and the Nicaraguans and the Cubans um, who were being oppressed by, by the United States helping their governments oppress them. Um, not in Cuba, but that was slightly different. But um, the U.S. activity against these people made it so that they made it hard for them to organize and work. And we formed an organization that was service organization to them when, when, when their offices were broken into, they called us. When people were arrested on, for picketing, they called on us. We, we made it easier for people to express their political opinions and to carry out the street movements that, that should happen and that, that need to happen if anything is going to change. Right. Street movement is very important. You've been with the National Lawyers Guild involved. I remember Occupy Wall Street. Those little green hats were invaluable. I got arrested five or six times. They were there observing. Uh, so uh, mass movement uh, uh, legal work is uh, something that you've been involved with for a long time. And I, I, I imagine it's gratifying uh, to have participated in that kind of uh, occupation. Well, it, the Guild's Mass Defense Office was formed in 19... 19- 68 in response to what was happening at Columbia because so many students had been arrested that um, the Lawyers Guild, in order to respond, needed a, a, a program, a programmatic way of doing that. So since 1968, the Guild has had a mass defense uh, aspect to it that has dealt with uh, protests in the streets wow. and arrested. Arrested protesters. Well, they, 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 they're a godsend. Uh, ask anyone uh, who gets the RNC. I remember they were there, uh, Occupy, and many other uh, mass uh, movements on the street. I want to thank you uh, very much. We've been talking to Margaret Ratner Kunstler uh, and uh, wish you well and hope you will come back soon. We have a lot more to talk about. Thank you, Margaret. And, thank you, uh, Randy. And we're going to take a quick break with Nina Simone and come back with another uh, great uh, civil rights attorney, uh, Martin Stoller. Ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweaters, ain't got no perfume. Ain't got no culture, ain't got no mother, ain't got no father, ain't got no brother, ain't got no children, ain't got no aunts, ain't got no uncles, ain't got no love, ain't got no mind. I ain't got no country. Okay, ain't got nobody, I believe, uh, Nina Simone. I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico, 99.5 FM, live on the fly on 99.5 FM, free speech radio here at WBAI. And once again, uh, the number, if you would like to get that book, uh, is uh, 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Well, we're going to move forward right now, uh, folks, with uh, someone I've... uh, Known for about 11 years. He's uh, represented me on numerous occasions uh, during Occupy. When I ran for governor, he uh, defended me in court. He was two for three. He lost one, but won the other two. And uh, he was there uh, when I was uh, going through that sad saga with Roger Stone. He's a uh, another uh, uh, recipient of the National Lawyers Guild uh, Award uh, a couple of times. And uh, he's uh, one of the best 
with an incredible track record in movement politics as lawyer. Uh, Martin Stoller, thank you for coming back. Randy, my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I was just talking to uh, one of your cohorts, uh, Margaret Ratner Kunstler, uh, who also worked um, with the Attica uh, Defense. Was it the Defense Fund? Well, Attica Brothers Legal Defense is a better way to put okay, it. Okay, yes. Well, all right. So we only had a few minutes to talk to her about that. And I want to begin before I talk about Julian Assange and some of the other uh, uh, work that you have done uh, on the Attica Brothers. Since this is the 50-year anniversary, why don't you just give us your thoughts about Attica and what kind of impact uh, the uprising and, and the repression, the vile brutal repression, murderous repression had on you at that time 50 years ago, Marty? Uh, 50 years ago when Attica jumped off, it was the beginning of uh, an understanding of what incarceration was like. It was the beginning of a deep understanding of the way racism permeates the criminal justice system. Um, It was the beginning of a call for inmates to ask for liberation, not to be freed from their jail cells, but to be treated like human beings. Right. Um, it was, uh, some of the demands were very simple. And, you know, I, uh, for years I've been doing demonstration cases. Attica is the ultimate demonstration of the grievances that permeated the incarceration system and that gave us an insight that I think the country has never had before. Marty, do you think – I just want – do you think the public was aware of how bad and how brutal the conditions were in Attica prior to the uh, September 9th takeover? Not not the public at large. Um, And that's one of the things that Attica did is it put it right on the front page and said something is wrong. It led to reforms, but the reforms are certainly didn't go far enough. Uh, We lived in an age of mass incarceration where the racism – of the society is reflected in the prison system and we see who's locked up. And that's the lesson that one of the lessons that in the event that we're planning for this fall, uh, we're planning two panels, one that's going to talk about uh, what happened in September of 1971 um, from the 9th when the rebellion started until the 13th when it was brutally put down at the hands of then Governor Nelson Rockefeller, the chief war criminal of the time. Um, And then we're going to have another panel on the 13th that speaks to the future, uh, what incarceration looks like, what it should look like, what movements that have come out of uh, a reawakening, um, I think, of of questions about racism and criminal justice that have uh, derived from the death of George Floyd, and we'll see how much forward we can move and we're inviting everybody who wants to come to be on those events and to be part of those events and to participate. Well, Marty, you spent a lot of time uh, in, in the courtrooms. I mean, you know the courtrooms. You know who is getting arrested. You know who's going to jail. Uh, when Attica uh, took place, there was probably like 15,000 people uh, in, in that ballpark uh, who were in prison in, in New York State uh, prison system. Uh, it got up to 70,000. It's, it's still like 55,000. Uh, do you think the uh, criminal justice system, since we focus so much on the police, we don't focus on the prosecutors and the judges and uh, everyone else that's involved, the appellate judges? Is it racist from top to bottom? Absolutely. It, I mean, the, it, it's permeated with racism from who gets Remember, the system starts with who gets arrested. And Policing is imminently stricter in black and brown communities and communities of color um, in in, uh, any community that's a little bit off where the policing is much more severe. And as a result, arrests take place, which are much more severe. Uh, Those arrests then get processed through the system and a bunch of them wind up going to jail. And, you know, it starts with why does policing happened to crack down like that. And indeed, it talks about why are there neighborhoods where the police decide that they have to crack down and why are those neighborhoods built the way they are, where they are hotbeds of criminal conduct and conduct which is antisocial. Right. And and so, uh, look, we can have some reforms. There's 
there are bills that are being put in front of Congress. Uh, we can have marijuana is now legal in New York State, but you, you know some reforms uh, on the way police behave, body cameras, and all of that. But unless you change. The, the culture of, of, of the courtrooms, and I'm talking about the prosecutors and the judges. In New York State, the prosecutors, the DAs, uh, including the special narcotics uh, prosecutors, been there for 20 years without being elected, uh, is white. I mean, <laughs> they're all white, and the people that go into prison uh, are mostly black, particularly on drug offenses. So how do we well, make you know, the fundamental— And, they're, and they're, all, they're all going to school now to try to get courses on how to deal with racism and how to deal with implicit and explicit racism, and they're paying lip service to it. That's a, that's a step forward, at least. Uh, they're paying lip you know, service. I mean, you go to you've worked at 100 Center Street for ages. You know who goes through that meat grinder there. And it's called the chow. Burton Roberts called it the chow. Uh, and, and so uh, when you go in there, do you ever see like uh, like uh, a majority of the people that are in there for arraignments being white? Uh, it's, uh, no, that's not definitely what happens at 100 Center Street, Randy. What? You can see what uh, who gets arrested, and you see who goes through the system. And particularly, I, you know, I see it in the clients that my wife represents. She's a public defender, and, you know, 99% of her clients are people who are people of color. Right, yeah. So uh, she's a great attorney. Uh, and uh, it, it must be difficult to uh, go in there day in and day out into 100 Center Street or 111 Center Street and having people that are in such – uh, you know, the odds are against them because the judge is white, the prosecutor is white, and they look like him, as Jimmy Breslin would say, like it was a car and they're going to put him in a parking lot. Well, that is what happens in the criminal justice system. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting, but there are also occasionally good outcomes in the criminal justice system. And the fact that all the Attica indictments ultimately were dismissed was a good outcome. It took a huge amount of work. Uh, you know, the government indicted, you know, uh, almost 50 men who were part of the Attica Rebellion and, and tried to criminalize their activities. Uh, we beat all those indictments. Every back. single indictment was beaten. I didn't I didn't realize that. Well, there was one conviction and that ultimately got reversed. So that but must have been else? that must have been, um, you know, some effort. Was, How many lawyers were involved in that? Oh, my God, there were. You know, maybe a hundred lawyers from all around the country. There were lawyers from the West Coast, lawyers from Detroit, lawyers from Boston, lawyers from Chicago, uh, lawyers from New York, lawyers from upstate New York, law students from all over the place. Um, everybody learned about racism and learned about what Attica meant and and its significance. And I think it had an effect on everybody's life that went through it, right. uh, myself included. Right. You know, talking. I sat down one day, Randy, I sat down at a meeting up at uh, uh, one of the institutions upstate and, you know, didn't know what was going on. It was very early in my entrance into the case. And I'm sitting down and talking and talking to the guy next to me and, you know, who's one of the guys who was indicted. And later on, after the meeting, somebody asked me and says, hey, you know who you were talking to? I said, no, you know, I said, this is what the guy's name was. And he says, well, that's the guy who's in there for killing Malcolm X. Whoa. I was a bit astounded. Well, that's 50 years ago, uh, Attica, and uh, half a century ago. That year was a busy year for you, Marty. Uh, I'm looking at the Camden 28. Uh, give us a little backdrop on the Camden 28, which is not getting uh, much uh, attention. These days, uh, you know, it was it was a uh, an action that took place about 50 years ago in the the, uh, the, the summer of the, the early fall of 1971 by a bunch of folks associated with what's come to be known as the Catholic left, and their predecessors had gone into draft boards in an effort to mess up the Vietnam War and mess up the draft of the young men who were being drafted to, to fight in an illegal and unjust war. And they would go in and they would raid the draft board, grab the draft files, and stand outside and burn them and wait to get arrested. Well, they did. This group of people decided to do it clandestinely and to burglarize an office in Camden, New Jersey, and to rip up and take away the draft files to protect young men from getting arrested. 
They tried to do it, and then they kind of fell apart. The conspiracy just sort of broke apart. And then this young man came in and said, who was a friend of one of the local priests who was involved in the action, and said, I can pull this whole thing together. So he pulled it together, and they've succeeded in pulling everybody in, at least 28 people. Uh, they burglarized the, the the federal building in Camden. They grabbed the draft files, and lo and behold, the FBI was there waiting for them and arrested everybody on the scene. Wow. The guy who had pulled the conspiracy back together again turned out to be an FBI informant. All of them were arrested. All of them were charged in a major conspiracy case. And it's my favorite case, Randy, when people say to me, well, how can you defend people who are guilty? I point to the Camden case and I say, look, here are people who were caught in the act. We then went to trial in the case two years later in 1973 with three lawyers, myself, Carl Broge, and David Carries, and 17 of the 28 defendants, all of whom were either pro se, meaning they represented themselves, or they were co-counsel with one of us three lawyers, and we put the war in Vietnam on trial. Wow. And we're successfully able to do that. And we put the government's conduct on trial. Well, would you say, Mar so Marty, that was a case of jury nullification then, since they did so do when it? We talked to the jury, when we talked to the jury afterwards, half the jury decided to acquit the defendants because they believed the war in Vietnam was illegal. That's jury nullification. Right. The other half of the jury accepted our defense of outrageous government misconduct about how the FBI had actually created the conspiracy and then had arrested people for committing the conspiracy that they had created. The jury decided that was outrageous government misconduct, and the other half of the jury acquitted on that ground. Uh, it was an, an, extraordinary, an extraordinary trial and has been called by at least one Supreme Court justice the greatest political trial of the 20th century. It certainly was one of them. Uh, I can uh, I agree with you on that. And I, I like the idea of jury nullification. I'm a big proponent of it. Uh, do you think uh, that uh, it is a, uh, you know, a good thing to participate in if you are on a jury that a juror can say, look, I know we're here to decide the facts, but we're going to decide the law, too. The law is well, bad. You know, a jury's deliberations are are totally private. And juries often are asked to do justice in a case. And they bring to the jury room and the committee that the jury constitutes a sense of justice. And if the case is right, then they won't convict somebody in a case where it just doesn't seem proper to do so. Okay. Uh, they can disregard the facts of the case, and that is ultimately jury nullification. I... You're not supposed to be able to tell the jury that they have that power, but they have it. They do, and there's nothing that the government can do about it if you want to uh, exercise jury nullification. Uh, before we get into Assange, we only have – this is going by real quickly. I want to ask you about the other 50-year anniversary of a, the one that you were the lead counsel. It's all you, is the Hand Shoe case and the Black Panthers. <laughs> can you give us an encapsulation of Hand Shoe? Well, I could try, Randy. Uh, the Hanshu case was filed in May of 1971, uh, and we're almost at the 50th anniversary of the filing of the case. And it was uh, designed to try to control the way the New York City Police Department gathers intelligence about political organizations, political individuals, and religious organizations and individuals. What led to the filing of the case was a disclosure that came out of the Panther 21 prosecution that the Manhattan chapter of the Black Panther Party had been founded and populated in its upper echelon officerships by the New York City Police Department. We decided enough was enough. We sued them to say they shouldn't be doing stuff like that. The case dragged on for a number of years until 1985, when uh, the court declared that the case could be brought as a class action. Uh, the city then said, hey, let's talk about settling the case rather than giving disclosure of their files. And we established a set of guidelines that essentially laid out 
a warrant-like procedure before they could investigate any kind of political or religious activity. They had to get the authority from something that was an authority, and there was a civilian that was appointed to be part of the authority. So their investigations of political activity over the next several years dropped because they could not justify doing investigations that they wanted to do, which were based on people's politics rather than based on people's alleged criminal activity. Right. And your guidelines said if it's political activity, you can't touch it. If it's criminal activity, straight, go ahead and investigate it. If it's a mixture of political and criminal activity, then you got to get permission before you could investigate it. Wow. That worked for a while. And it worked up until 9-11. And after 9-11, Rudy Giuliani, our illustrious mayor at the time, brought in a man who was steeped in the Central Intelligence Agency and never had any respect for the Constitution. He became the new head of the Intelligence Division and brought a motion in federal court, which still had the smell of 9-11 running around it in 2002, to say, I cannot investigate terrorism with these guidelines. These are awful. They're prohibiting us from investigating terrorism. Terrorism was a magic word in 2002, uh, as it remains today. And he almost was on the verge of completely abolishing the guidelines when the judge said, nope, wait a minute, you've shown me some stuff. I'm going to keep the guidelines in place, but we're going to loosen them up and let the control of the guidelines, control of investigations reside in the police department. Wow. That led, Randy, to an incredible surveillance and a, a sweeping, overarching view of the Muslim community in New York City and elsewhere, but mainly in New York City where the excesses that they engaged in resulted in Pulitzer Prize-winning AP exposures of how they had targeted mosques, how they had targeted entire Muslim communities, all in a vain search for the next terrorist. Wow. When that came out, we went back to court and said, hey, wait a minute. They're breaking the rules here. They're completely violating the First Amendment. And the guidelines were tightened up again and put back into place, and now they're much stronger than they were before. Wow. Again, the rules are in place that control what the police department does. doesn't prohibit them from doing it, but it attempts to control them in the same way that the Fourth Amendment requires a search warrant before you can invade somebody's house. Okay. Set up a system where they have to get it and say, stop, wait a minute. We have to justify our investigation to a committee. That includes a civilian, and that seems to have worked over the past several years. Right. Well, that's an incredible story and great work, Marty. I, I got just a few minutes left, and I I brought in a uh, one minute. I, I got to squeeze in this thing. Uh, this relates, and you can talk talk about it on the other side because you know about uh, these SAMs. Well, Randy, Randy, I really wanted to talk about something else that's much more current. Yeah. What I is... wanted to talk about the Chauvin trial that's going on because I've done a lot of murder cases. Okay, I, I guess we won't talk in... about this. All right, go ahead. We've got two minutes listeners... left. I want to give your listeners an insight into what's going on. Okay, let's listen. The insight being that everything that you're seeing is a lot of fluff. The main defense is that the guy did not cause the death. They're going to have the medical examiner testify who's going to say that it was drugs in the system and the weakness of the system because he previously used drugs. That's what caused his death. It was not this police officer. That's going to be the defense. Everything else is fluff. Right. I, I also think, by the way, that there's going to be a conviction because notwithstanding what caused the death, nine minutes on somebody's neck is going to be a little too much for the jury. Right. But I'm a defense lawyer, so I know what kind of defense is going to be put up there. Well, I, I, we'll, we'll see. Uh, well, we got two. I'm going to get this in here, Marty. We're going to add an extra minute to the show. I want to play this uh, for you and just in a minute explain what these SAMs are. This is Julian Assange from a few years back. Okay. politics uh, that I would be sentenced to death 
Probably not, uh, but that doesn't mean there's not a, a, a risk of a sort of living death. Uh, in the United States, there's something called SAMs, and for national security cases, terrorism cases, they put people in SAMs restrictions, which is you're in incommunicado detention. So even if you communicate something to the public through your lawyer, the lawyer goes to prison. And this has happened in the United States. And he is talking about uh, Lynn Stewart. Mar- Marty, in a minute, uh, yeah, your he's thoughts? Talk- what he's talking about are special administrative measures, which are designed to prohibit an inmate from communicating with the outside world. Um, those were employed against Lynn's client, the Sheik. Uh, they're employed particularly against people who are outspoken politically, And I would expect that if Julian is ever put in to the United States penal system, that they're going to have Sam's put on him. And that 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 is for political purposes, basically. There's no other reason except to silence somebody for political purposes. Well, Julian, once he's put in, if he's in a United States prison, he's not going to have access to a computer. He's not going to have access to be doing WikiLeaks work to be acting like the journalist that he was. What are they afraid of? are they possibly afraid of? Yeah, they don't like uh, speaking truth to power. We've been talking to Marty Stoller. Uh, Marty Stoller, I, um, I hope you're back in action inside the UNLC and the criminal uh, inside 100 Industry because they certainly could use you there. A lot of people uh, that need attorneys, and you are two of the best. Martin Stoller, thank you very much uh, for spending this time with us, and we'll talk to you very soon. Marty Stoller. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. And we're going to go out now with Johnny Cash and San Quentin. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. All right. uh, I forgot to mention that book. You got to get that book, folks. Support this station in defense of Assange for a $50 pledge only. Uh, just call up 212-209-2950. You'll get this kind of programming seven days a week. Nowhere else are you going to get anything like this. So support this station in defense of Assange. It's available. I want to see at least 20 people get this book, and they'll be signed by Margaret Ratner Kunstler. That's a $50 pledge. Uh, 212-209-2950. See you next Wednesday at 2.30. Mr. Congressman, you can't understand. good do you think you do do you think i'll be different when you're through you bend my heart and mind and you warp my soul your stone walls turn my blood a little cold san quentin may you rot and burn in hell May your walls fall and may I live to tell. May all the world forget you ever stood. And may all the world regret you did no good. San Quentin, I hate every inch of you. This is Julian Assange. You're listening to WBAI New York. Stay strong and keep listening. Extinction Diaries. The connection between humans and animals is now better understood since a Tel Aviv University study focused on the effect extinct species have on humans. It was revealed that hunter-gatherers are emotionally connected with their prey, maybe more after extinction. In Europe, 40,000-year-old engravings portray animals like mammoths and seals that were already long extinct in the artist's lifetime. Perhaps the artist was longing to revive the partnership his ancestors described. Studying modern societies, we understand meaning or significance 
significance in ancient animal art. Indigenous cultures worldwide express a deep loyalty to an animal partnership and a responsibility to that animal or an entire ecosystem, like a forest. There is also guilt when there is a loss that could have been avoided or a species that needed to be defended. Our deep connectedness with animals shines in the fight to save the Amazon forest, where defenders are being murdered at a shocking rate. Perhaps ancient cave art is the work of the first highest evolved human, homo activist. My name is Rising Moon, and this is a Small World Radio production. Thanks to you. Thank you and everyone.